The New Testament reading today is from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would, make, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and, on our, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the gospel of the Lord. So, we have been talking about the church in the current sermon series that we are in. This is basically a topical series, but one that is a response to our expositional verse-by-verse series through the Gospel of Luke, because Luke's Gospel left us with that big question, right? Now what? Jesus died and rose again. What comes next? And Luke's answer that is implied there and certainly answered in his sequel, the book of Acts, is... The church is what is next. Jesus died and rose again, ascended into heaven, sent his spirit to us to empower the preaching of Christ. And the result of that preaching of Christ is that everyone who believes is redeemed, restored, forgiven, not on the basis of any work, but because Jesus died and rose again. And those who believe are not merely delivered as individuals, but gathered together to be the church, the body of Christ. We've talked about uh, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, all believers throughout all time and space. That's what we mean when we say in the creed, I believe in uh, one holy Catholic church or the, the holy Catholic church. That is a church that won't gather until Christ returns to gather us all together, right? So in the meantime, Christians do gather into these things we call local churches, which we see throughout uh, the Old Testament. Almost all of the instruction is written to local churches, and even what's written to individuals is written to individuals who are leaders in local churches or instructing them how to behave in local church contexts. So as a local church... We carry out the work that Jesus has given us, as we described it in these last few sermons. We serve God in worship. We serve one another by building one another up, edification. We serve the lost by making disciples. 
exaltation, edification, evangelism are the three alliterative uh, words to help remember that if you want an oversimplified but easy way to, to remember something. But at this point in our series, you know, I, I do want to start getting a little bit more practical. Starting today, I want to look at different roles within the church. And when we think of different roles, we think maybe of the offices of elder and deacon. But first, there's a role that we all share together. Uh, all Christians, I believe, are called to share in, and that is the role of church member. What is this role? Well, we have a church covenant to try to unpack what the responsibilities are. It's simply an attempt to summarize what the New Testament teaches. We don't have anything in there that we don't believe has strong biblical uh, foundations, just the biblical responsibilities. We're to teach and admonish one another, follow your leaders, forgive one another, don't neglect to assemble together, use the gifts that you've been given to serve each other, most importantly, love one another, right? But it's also not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. We also see in the New Testament a responsibility to do things like reject false teachers. Christ, not Christ, Paul, uh, wrote in the book of Galatia, the Galatians, instructed them, writing to the whole church, not just the elders, said that even if the apostles themselves come and preach a different gospel, let them be anathema. Part of all of our jobs together is to reject false teaching. Paul also, in 1 Corinthians 5, earlier in the book that our current text is from, talks about judging those who are on the inside rather than those who are on the outside, but within the church, holding people accountable for living in a manner worthy of our calling. It means if someone lives a life of unrepentant sin and fail to respond to a call to repentance, or they're living in a way that even the world recognizes as wicked, we need to clearly condemn the behavior as sinful and stop associating with that person as if everything's okay, if they're clearly one of us. It's the best thing for that person, for the church, for our witness to the world, right? These are some of the responsibilities that we all share as members of the body of Christ. Uh, this is one reason that we believe in church membership, even though things like membership lists and covenants aren't explicitly, explicitly commanded by Scripture. What is explicit is a serious level of commitment to one another and a clear way of indicating who has made that commitment, who we count as brothers and sisters and, and who we do not. You can't be obedient to the teaching of Scripture without obeying this whole host of commands that assume you are part of a, commu a committed community of believers. So joining a church, becoming a member, simply means you've gone on record as making that commitment to a particular local church. Welcoming new members as a church simply means we go on record as making that same commitment to the individual. On a perhaps entirely self-serving note, uh, for those of us who are elders uh, in, in the church, it's nice to know who exactly we are going to be held accountable for watching over their souls. This has all been sort of prelude. I just mean to define what, what I mean by practicing church membership, explain why we have this designation of member. But what I want to talk about today really are not the explicit 
duties, but the heart of a church member. Because if we don't have the biblical attitude of church membership or toward church membership, then the responsibilities, I think, just aren't going to happen. And one concern that I have is that many Christians in our day, many even churches in our day, have a very low level of commitment to one another. Uh, To adapt some Sondheim lyrics, we could uh, describe the attitude thus, join our church a little, love us just enough, warm and sweet and easy, just the simple stuff, keep a tender distance so we'll all be free. That's the way it ought to be. How gently we'll talk, how softly we'll tread, all the stings, the ugly things we'll keep unsaid. We'll build a cocoon of love and respect. You promise whatever you like, we'll never collect, right? Now, we could go to the opposite extreme and demand total submission to an authoritarian church government, right? You are committed and you will do as we say, and everything you do in your life you must approve through us, get counsel for a new job or whatever, touch not the Lord's anointed sort of thing. That's not joining a church, that's joining a cult, right? So there has to be some alternative in between those extremes of we're not really committed or uh, we control all of your life. And the best place to find that alternative is simply to go to the Word of God, which brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And of course, to set up the context here, Paul is dealing with a very unhealthy church in Corinth, right? Uh, They are divided over who their favorite celebrity preachers are, we could say. Uh, That doesn't happen today, right? They are excluding people from the Lord's Supper by not waiting for them to arrive and meanwhile getting drunk on the wine so that there's none left when others arrive. They're apparently competing over spiritual gifts somehow, who has the best or most impressive gifts, using the Holy Spirit's gifts, which are given to show love and care for your brother and sister, instead using them to show that I'm better than my brother and sister. So if you find yourself complaining about the state of the church today, read 1 Corinthians and remember that there's nothing new under the sun, right? The first generation of believers had trouble. And if you're inclined to say we should just give up on the church because it has so many problems, read First and Second Corinthians and compare your attitude to the Apostle Paul's. He is not finished with the church. He is deeply grieved by what is going on in Corinth, and he works hard to call them to faithfulness. And we see why in verses 12 and 13 here, where he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The reason Paul hasn't given up on them is the same as the reason he gives them for working out their division and dysfunction, for doing better, because they are all one body in Christ. There is one Holy Spirit, and because they all share in that same spirit, they are all one already in Christ. And this is my first actual sermon that we are all one already 
in Christ Jesus. That is a reality for us to recognize. And in Paul's context here, dealing with controversies over spiritual gifts, it shows us how ridiculous it is to be competitive about these things. We have the same spirit. The same spirit that gave you your gifts is the one who gave me my gifts and gave the person next to you their gifts. We as sinners can have friction sometimes with those who have different gifts, different ways they're called to serve. We can think, our gift is better, more godly. Maybe I think I'm teaching the word, not you know, fussing over administrative issues. Or we can be envious of someone's gift that seems to get more recognition or prestige. But I think what's even more common is we have friction with people who have the same or similar gifts. Uh, this is where envy and scorn and competition come into play. I'm more gifted than you are, or I'm afraid that you're more gifted than I am. And we miss the obvious point. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The wonderful thing about all these different gifts that we are given is the spirit, where they came from, and how Christ died and rose again and sent the spirit to dwell within us. I'm going to sidestep the questions about whether Paul is talking about water baptism or whether baptized in, in, or, one spirit, in or by one spirit means simply conversion. Pretty clear to my mind that it can't mean some extra experience of the spirit that not all Christians get because Paul said earlier on in this chapter that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The emphasis here is simply that we are all partakers together of the same Holy Spirit, all who confess Christ together. And that means, as uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would remind us in his book Life Together, that the unity of the church is not something we are called to achieve. The unity of the church has already been achieved by God through the cross of Christ. We are already one in Christ Jesus. We share in the same spirit. Our God has made us one. So the cross did more for you than just to save your soul. It did more than just breaking down the wall dividing you from God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says the cross broke down the dividing wall of hostility but he was referring to a dividing wall of hostility that separated people from people, Jews from Gentiles in that context. And if that wall has been torn down, which was in a sense in place because of the, the Sinai covenant, if that wall has been torn down, then any walls we might put up certainly should also be torn down. As many have put it, when God adopts you as his child, you not only get a heavenly father, but a whole bunch of brothers and sisters, everyone else that God has already adopted as his child or will adopt as his child. If you're united to Christ through faith, congratulations, you're also united to everyone else who's also united to Christ. That's how it works when you unite things, right? If the one Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you have this profound unity with everyone else who has that same spirit. That unity is the reason we need to gather together in fellowship. 
It isn't in the first place just because we like each other or we're such nice and friendly people. Those things are helpful too. But it's because we share the same Father, we share the same Lord Jesus Christ, and the same Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Our fellowship, in a sense, is by grace, not by merit. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore it when people sin against us or disappoint us, as they are bound to do. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. It's too important to just ignore it when other Christians sin against you. We strive for genuine fellowship, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul said in Ephesians. Actual unity, not just some superficial kind of civility. I've made this point before, but I think that kind of fellowship is worth striving for because I believe it's the best apologetic we have, the best evidence or demonstration of the truth of the gospel is if we can make visible the unity that God has made a spiritual reality in Christ. Jesus said, all people will know we are his disciples if we have love for one another. And according to the rest of the sermon text, we can make it visible. God has actually designed us for this purpose. God not only made us one in the Spirit, but has gathered us together and gifted us in such a way that we have what we need to live out the unity of the Spirit. We see that design in two ways, I believe, as God's design comes up twice in this text. And the first of those two ways, which is the second point of my sermon, uh, is that God made us different, and those differences are part of God's design. I've always been amazed that early on in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he wrote to this dysfunctional, divided church and said, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless. It's the amount of confidence he has in there and the fact that he sees them as having the gifts they need. Now, I know a lot of commentators uh, think Paul might be something like a little bit snarky there since they're so impressed with their gifts, and he probably is setting up his correction for their attitudes about gifts, but I don't think this is really snarky. I, I think he's sincere. The gifts that they have are good, and the differences in their gifts are part of God's design meant to bind them together. Look at what he says here, starting in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. But if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So Paul acknowledges the difference, and he's trying to teach them through this image of the body that all members of the church are necessary. You wouldn't chop off your foot because you thought hands are better than feet, right? 
This is a little bit like the kind of would-you-rather game that uh, we like to play at our house or on the dinner table. Would you rather have hands for feet or feet for hands? Neither of them is a really good option, right? Uh, you know, it might seem like hands can do more. They can knead bread or play the piano or catch a ball. Mine can't catch a ball, but some people's can. It never ceases to amaze me. You know, my head can make contact with the ball quite well. Happened many times in gym class. I was simply trying to get away from it, but it goes straight to my head every time, no doubt. Sucked into the gravity well of my ego, but you know, hands can do a lot of things is the point. But the important things you really need feet to do, run and jump and stomp and drive a shovel into the ground or even just stand here for any length of time, that would be miserable if you had hands for feet, right? Deep and obvious thoughts here, right? <laughs> Maybe you've heard some of this before. We need different gifts in the church. Maybe you think, I'm a gifted preacher, uh, but I can assure you, if everyone had my exact set of gifts, our church would be dead in a matter of weeks. There are so many things we would be missing, like organization and, I don't know, you don't need to point out and list them, but you know what we'd be missing most likely by now. We need everyone, right? The key point Paul makes is that God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose when we say God has made us one, we don't mean by that is God has taken a bunch of parts that really uh, don't belong together, cannot actually fit together, thrown them into one big basket and said, okay, you guys now figure it out, right? Somehow in the providence of God, no church is a chimera. If you remember the chimera from Greek mythology, a monster made up of random different body parts of different animals. I don't remember what it was. Something like, I don't know, it had the, the, the legs of a snake, the wings of a lion, the teeth of an eagle, or the you know, claws of a shark. I don't know. I'm just, just, you can draw me a picture of that and uh, um, whatever. But that's not the church is the point. God has arranged us, Christ First Church, here today, each one as he chose, so that we have all the members we need to be the church that he desires for us to be today. You have something to contribute. You are needed here. Not only welcome here, but needed here. Now, maybe you hear that and you think, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Maybe you're in a stage of life where you're extremely busy or your health is poor. It's not exactly clear what you can possibly do around here. Or maybe you think, what about some of the members who maybe they don't seem very mature? Maybe there are people you think, I don't really want them doing things around here, sticking their nose in things. Well, if you're thinking that, that brings us to the second part of Paul's uh, teaching on God's design for the body. So, second point on how God has designed the body. Third point in the sermon, verse 22. On the contrary, uh, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
Just focus on this word weak for a second. It can mean sick or sickly even. You know, what do you do when part of your body is sickly or weak? I'm over 40, so I'm starting to develop some experience with this. I'm excited to say that my eyes are finally weak enough at focusing close, close up at things that I finally got my very first pair of over-the-counter reading glasses this week. You know, I didn't say, stupid eyes, I don't need you anyway, so I'm just going to stop looking at things. No, it's presbyopia for the win. I finally get to look as nerdy on the outside as I should be using them right now, but I, can, I printed this large enough that I don't have to uh, so that I can also see you. Uh, but, um, y- you know, I, some of you maybe think I, I are always looked as nerdy on the outside as I feel on the inside, but it helps to, helps to have the glasses. and um, You know, maybe if somebody you know, wants to get into a fight, you can put them on quickly, and there's just a lot of advantages there, but last week I was having lower back pain, of course, for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, Uh, and so I said, who needs lumbar vertebrae anyway, right? We'll just cut them out if they're causing us pain. Of course I didn't. I rested, fired up the heating pad, I smeared on some icy hot. My kids kept saying, what's that smell? But I didn't care. I needed to take care of this, right? And it seems so strange. Why would I inconvenience all my other parts just to take care of that one stupid part that's in pain? I put ointment on that set my skin on actual fire just to soothe the aching muscle underneath. Why? It's not my skin's problem, is it? Well, actually it is, right? Because even though I have a lot of parts, it's all one body. Like Paul says in verse 26, right? If one member suffers, all suffer together. Now I'm focusing on his idea of of the weak or sickly parts. I won't give real life examples of what Paul might mean by the dishonorable or unpresentable parts because I like my job here. But Paul's point is that the body of the church, like a physical body, has some members that are sick or weaker at times. And we care for them. And like the physical body, there are some members that we might not want people to see in public, so to speak. But Paul's answer helps us clear up a possible misconception about what we mean when we say each member is necessary for us to be the church God called us to be. What God has called us to be as the church is the body of Christ. To steal a phrase from Mark Dever's book title, the church is the gospel made visible. Paul's instruction here is about honoring the reality of our unity in the Spirit, making that visible. And so the message here is not simply all hands on deck, but we are all in this together. Sometimes a member of the body of Christ is weak. Maybe they're actually sick or infirm, unable to serve in any measurable capacity to further our programs and agendas and ideas. The unity of the Spirit is not displayed by their service to the organization, but our service to them. That when one member suffers, all suffer together. Or what about that member that you think 
is immature, and maybe we don't want them involved, and maybe we're right, it would be a disaster. What's our responsibility to that member of the body? Isn't it to come alongside them, to edify them, to strengthen them, to encourage them, rebuke or correct if that's necessary? You know, pastors and ministry leaders of all kinds can fall into this trap where we think our job is to strategize and spearhead programs and get things done. We've got these big visions and strategies and statements. And we're not entirely wrong. Those things are good and helpful to a point. But what happens when someone gets in the way of our planning? Someone isn't being a team player or someone messes something up or there's conflict with an individual who has questions about our plans or concerns. People are getting in the way of our ministry. We see it as a distraction from the work of ministry. But it's not. It is ministry, right? It is part of the work that we're supposed to do, right? That's second E, E, edification. So the biblical analogy for the church Paul uses is not a machine with many parts. No one is just a cog in a machine. If a cog in a machine breaks down or doesn't work... You just bypass it or you can take it out entirely. You don't need to deal with it. Maybe you keep it on the shelf uh, just because you don't like throwing stuff away, but you take it out of the system. You don't do that with body parts, generally speaking. You do anything and everything you can to keep them and restore them to health. Removing a body part is only for the most extreme circumstances. And that should be our attitude in the body of Christ right? To build one another up, to seek health in each other, to seek to involve one another, and we only, so to speak, amputate in the most extreme circumstances and cases of of unrepentant sin. And even then, it's for the good of that individual, so our amputation metaphor breaks down, right? Because we hope that we're able to reincorporate them again. As far as I know, that doesn't work with physical body amputation, but this should be our attitude in the body of Christ, We see each other as a member of ourselves. Their pain is our pain. Their joy is our joy. If you've heard the intro to this sermon and my little join our church a little spiel and thought, yeah, we've got some people around here with that attitude. They really need to get to the program and get involved here. Then the challenge for you is to move toward that person. Pray for that person. Seek to show them the love of Christ, seek to build them up and edify them. Because our goal is not to be a well-oiled machine. Our ultimate goal is to make the gospel visible, to show the love of Christ within our fellowship, our community with one another. Show the love of Christ to one another so that anyone who walks in here can see the love of Christ. And what does the love of Christ look like, by the way? It looks like the only righteous man, the only human being who was ever totally on board with God's purposes and plan of salvation, gave up his life for all of us deadbeats and sinners. He did not write us off for our failure to do God's work or for our outright rebellion and resistance to God's purposes. He gave everything he had to bring us into the fold, into his own body. We were standing in the way of God's mission, a 
opposing him at every turn. We were all weak and sick and dishonorable and unpresentable, and Christ took on himself our weakness, our sickness, our dishonor. He clothed us with his own righteousness. That's the kind of honor he bestowed on us so that he can then present us before God, holy and blameless. And he lovingly works in us and works on us still so that he might use us for the purpose of his gospel, for his glory. He put that treasure into jars of clay like us. So the question is, how should we then love each other? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a great, glorious honor it is to be called your church, body of Christ, people for your own possession. And it is an even greater wonder when we think of the cost that you would send your only son to make wretches like us your treasure. Despite our sin, our rebellion against you, our resistance to everything that you would call us to be, yet you gave your only son who gave his life, gave up his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, so that we could be washed clean. Receiving adoption as your sons and daughters, receiving the promised Holy Spirit who dwells within us, makes us one, even now works on our hearts and minds to conform us to the image of Christ and gives us gifts, works through us, empowers proclamation of the gospel so that we might do your work to glorify your name, build one another up, and make disciples of all nations. Father, we look at your word and we see the high calling, what it looks like to be your church, to be the gospel made visible, to put the love of Christ on display. It is a beautiful picture as it is a challenging picture. It is not something we are able to do without your power, your work in us. I give you thanks and give you praise and give you the glory for all the ways that we have seen this already at work as we've seen members caring for one another, praying for one another, building one another up, uh, we pray by your grace that that would abound more and more, that it would be an unmistakable part of our fellowship here, that we would be knit together as closely as the members of our own body. We thank you that even as we say that and pray for that, that our ultimate unity is not something we accomplish, but has already been accomplished by you. 
and that when you are finished with us, finished with your whole church, you will have built a people for yourself from every tribe and tongue and kingdom and nation. Make them a kingdom and priests to God, gathered around the throne, praising your name through the Lamb who was slain. It is in his glorious name and in this blessed hope that we pray. Amen.